you, Ray. Ray has the distinction of being the only woman in my fundamentalism class. She tries to place a calming influence upon the young men, but <laughs> it's a heavy task for one woman. If you're a freshman or sophomore, ladies, ask her if it's worth taking the class, even though it's not required. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would, with me today. We're going to talk about a woman. Thus far in the book of Hebrews, we have been talking about men, and of course in Scripture we have a tendency to focus on the men. It's not that we're chauvinistic, it's just God's order of things. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, we are introduced in this hall of faith to Sarah. Sarah is the mother of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 51 Verses 1 and 2 says, Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. Most of the time when you're reading through this portion of Scripture or references back to this portion of Scripture, the name Abram or Abraham is used. In fact, we run into that name 311 times in Scripture. Sarah shows up 56 times almost all of them in Genesis 12 and following. Genesis 12, God makes a series of promises to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. And in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, God uses the pronoun you some 12 times. Always masculine singular. His covenant is with Abraham. There is no Sarah covenant in the Old Testament. God didn't make a covenant with Sarah. Abraham was a man of faith and obedience. We've talked about him already in chapel. He did stumble in his faith a few times. And of course, in Genesis 12, which we're going to turn to in just a moment, he left everything behind. Left his family behind. Took what possessions he could fit on the camels or donkeys or cart or whatever he did, no U-Haul in those days. And he goes where God has called him, this new God for him, Yahweh. Sarah, Sarai, as she's known in this time, she's just along for the ride. God didn't call her to Canaan. God did not speak to her. She just joined her husband she trusted Abram. She had faith in Abram to do the right thing for the family. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, she makes the hall of fame here because through faith also Sarah herself conceived strength, received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 11. We have here Sarah... We're going to talk about Sarah's second-hand faith. 
So she was trusting Abram to do the right thing. When Abram packs up to go to the promised land, she goes with him because she trusts Abram. We are introduced to Sarah in chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. And we're introduced to her as a childless woman. Genesis 11, 29. Terah lived 70 years, begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are the generations of Terah. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, 29 and 30. Abram and Nahor took them wives. Name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren. She's a childless wife. That's significant because chapter 11 has a genealogy that begins in verse 10. And if you read through that genealogy, it goes back to the generations in verse 10 of Shem. Shem begat sons and daughters. Arphaxad begat sons and daughters. Selah begat sons and daughters. And all the way through this section, someone begats sons and daughters until we get down to verse 30. But Sarah was barren. So in the context of all of these people having lots of children, we get this declaration that Sarah is childless. And Moses couldn't just say she was barren. He had to add, she had no child. It's like, come on, Moses, quit kicking her when she's down already. Why make such a big deal of her being barren? Well, we know that. You all know the story. Narratives are kind of like a novel. The downside is we've, always, we've all read the last chapter, so we know how things are going to kind of end up. But set that aside for now. We'll get there. What we want to do is we want to look at some background of Sarah because the readers of Hebrews would have understood Sarah's history. We kind of read through Hebrews 11 and we say, yeah, Sarah had a child, great, Isaac, son of promise, and we go on. But there's significant background in Sarah's life. And I would suggest that here at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, you have a man, Abram, who loved his wife deeply. Being childless in this age was a terrible status. It was a sign of God's or the God's, lowercase g, displeasure. Brought to Sarah the pain of inadequacy and guilt. And she lived with that for some four or five decades. But Abram never divorced her, never added a second wife. He was willing to bear her barrenness with her and to live childless with the woman that he loved. So in chapter 12, Sarah, Sarai, joins Abram in his trip down to Canaan. And at this time, she's 65 years old. Now, understand, people lived a little longer back in those days. Sarah died at 127. So when you think 65 in this time frame, maybe 40 would be a better idea. So Sarah was still relatively young. 
I realize for most of you college students, 40 is ancient. But 40 is the new 60, I think, or something like that. I've often wondered, as I've read through this, this text, what Sarai must have thought of when Abraham come, came home one day and said, Sarai, pack everything up, we're moving. They were living in Ur of the Chaldees. If you read about that in an in a ancient geography book or ancient history book, you discover that Ur was like New York City, Chicago, L.A. It was the big city of the time. Archaeologists have found stuff that was made all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean. Big city. Busy city. And Abram says, Sarai, we're moving to the promised land. Oh, where's that? Canaan. Where's that? Well, it's kind of southwest of here, but we're going to travel northwest, and then we're going to travel southwest, and it's going to take us a few years to get there. But God has called us. Which God, Abram? Yahweh. Never heard of him. Yeah, he's, he's the new God. Don't we have enough gods here in Ur? We need a new one? This is the true God. Okay, Abram, whatever you say, I'll start packing. And so she does. And they move. It takes them a while. Got to go up to Haran, wait till dad dies. Then they move on down to the promised land. We see that taking place in chapter 12, verse 5. Packed everything up, moved to Haran. Left there to go to the land of Canaan. Into the land of Canaan they came, and Abram passed through the land, and the place of Sichem, the plain of Morah, and Canaanite was in the land. And the Lord appears to Abram and starts talking to him. But in verse 10, there's famine. And so as a result of the famine, and we don't know exactly when this takes place, uh, it seems to have been fairly uh, soon after they get to the promised land, they move again. This demonstrates Sarai as a caring wife. In verse 10, there's a famine in the land, and Abram goes down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, they shall say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me, but they'll save you alive. So I pray thee, thou art my sister. And that's true. They both had the same father, different mothers, so they were half-brother and half-sister, but you're my sister. And it may be well with me, for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. So they get to Canaan in time to move to Egypt. Sarai moves again. Now, Abram is concerned, and perhaps rightly so, at least from a human perspective. God had promised him a family. He's not going to get a family if he gets killed in Egypt, so he's got to protect himself in order to fulfill God's promise. Second, Sarah was gorgeous. I mean, she wasn't just pretty. She was drop-dead gorgeous. 
I mean, she ends up in Pharaoh's harem. He takes only the best. And so he's concerned because some Egyptian is going to want you and they're going to kill me to get you, so just tell them you're my sister. And sure enough, somebody wanted her. But it's interesting, there's something missing from the text. There is not a single comment from Sarai. Now, we got a few wives in here today. Imagine if your husband said, honey, we're going to go down to Chicago. You know, it's a pretty nasty place down there. And just in case, if somebody comes along looking for you, just tell them I'm your brother. Don't tell them we're married. And if he hauls you off and does whatever he wants to you, that's okay as long as I don't get hurt. You would have your husband sleeping on the back porch (laughs) for the next month or two. I mean, we just can't conceive of somebody doing something like this. You go marry off to the Pharaoh so that I can survive. I mean, after all, I'm God's promised father. I've got to survive. And she says nothing. She doesn't complain. She doesn't say, I don't think this is a good idea. She goes along with it. Now, we understand, sorry ladies, but women in that society weren't supposed to be heard. So that's a possibility. And here Sarai is a barren wife. She has given Abraham no children. She carries that wound within herself. And so how much more would a woman humiliated by her barrenness remain silent? But what's fascinating in this event in their lives is that God does something that Abraham fails to do. God protects Sarai. Her faith has been in Abram up to this point. And I wonder if maybe, just maybe, she's getting a little more serious about this God, Yahweh, that Abram keeps talking about. But her second-hand faith continues. God protects her. They leave. They go back home. And God comes again in Genesis chapter 16. So over in Genesis chapter 16, we see Sarah again. She doesn't show up in chapters 13, 14, 15. But in chapter 16, she shows up. Now, it starts off in verse 1. Sarah, Abram's wife, bear him no children. Yes, Moses, we are aware of that. You have informed us of that multiple times. But now she has an idea. Um, Use the word calculating so that we could get the C in there. But she's, she's considering some options. I have to understand, um, God has not yet delivered on his promise. And so in chapter 16, Sarai is thinking, okay, we, we can work around this. I can can see her in the tent there with, uh, with Abram, saying, Abram, honey, dear, sweetheart, 
God, God's made this promise to you. So it wasn't made to me, it's made to you. You're going to have a child. So why don't you take Hagar? She's my Egyptian servant girl. You can have a child by this surrogate mother, and God's will will be accomplished. Now you have to understand, Abram brought Lot along because Lot was his nephew, a legitimate heir. But that's not God's plan. Earlier, God suggests Eleazar, his right-hand man, his manager of the working force, and God says, no, it's going to be your child. Sarah wasn't there, but I'm sure Abram talked to her about this, and so she says, I've got an idea, and so, okay, we'll do it. We'll, we'll try this out. We know how that came out. We know the story all too well. Sarah perceived after Hagar is uh, evidently pregnant, Sarah perceives, rightly or wrongly, that Hagar despises her. So she complains to Abram. Hagar's thrust out. She just couldn't bear to see this woman anymore. Just doesn't work very well when we do God's will in our way. When we attempt to accomplish what God wants done, but do it ourselves in our own power and our own strength. And of course, the result of this pregnancy has created a major headache for Israel down through the years. And we have seen some of those results in just these last few weeks. Sarah did what she did because she was beginning to believe God. And Abram was going to have a child. She just wasn't patient enough to wait for God's timing. So her second-hand faith is still there. And at this point, Sarai is now 75 years old. Now, when I speak of second-hand faith, I'm not talking about salvation. Hebrews chapter 11 is not a string of salvation testimonies of various individuals. It is God's faith in accomplishing something within God's will, of stepping out and doing what God asks people to do, no matter how crazy the idea may seem to the human mind. Secondhand faith does not work when it comes to salvation. My dad died when I was four years old. I assume that people told me, well, your dad's in heaven. That's what we would tell kids. I assume that I told somebody I wanted to go to heaven. If I knew my dad was in heaven, that would be a logical place for me to want to be. And I assume that someone then took me aside, walked through some scripture with me, and I prayed. And I use the term assume because I remember nothing like that. But I do know that as I was growing up, my mom told me on several occasions that I got saved when I was four. And my mom never lied to me, not once. And so I trusted my mom. If mom says I got saved, I got saved. My dad's sister, she told me I got saved when I was four. And Aunt Maria never lied to me. And so I believed Aunt Marie. 
And so I grew up trusting my mom, trusting my aunt. But as I got a little older, I thought, you know, people talk about salvation as being this grandiose experience, this wonderful experience, this life-changing experience. Shouldn't I remember something about it? Shouldn't at least there be some vague memory of me getting saved? That bothered me for a while. As I got a little older, I began to realize salvation is trusting Christ. I'm trusting mom. And I figured out mom's not going to get me to heaven. Wonderful as she is, she's not going to manage to get me through the back door or a side door. And so when I was 13, I realized I needed to trust Christ, not mom, not Aunt Marie. I had to trust Christ for my salvation. So in salvation, a secondhand faith just does not work. But when it comes to doing right, we are all part of a secondhand faith. If you were born into a Christian home, if your parents went to church on a regular basis, Sunday morning they got you out of bed, mom dressed you, fed you breakfast, stuck you in the car, off you went to church. Doing the right thing, but doing the right thing because mom and dad said we're going to church today. As you grew up, maybe you dressed yourself, mom didn't have to dress you, but you still drug off to church by your parents, whether you wanted to go or not. You did the right thing because of mom and dad. You come to Maranatha. Dr. Davis talked about this a few days ago. We make you do things. Now, going to class is a wise thing, but you don't have much choice. We give you a little bit of choice. You know, you've got a few cuts that you can use periodically, strategically, hopefully not wastefully. My younger son, math whiz, he always figured out how many cuts do I have left. You never want to waste a cut in his thinking. So how many cuts do I have left? How many days can I skip class? Always figured out, what's my GPA? He always knew his GPA to like the fourth or fifth point. And so he knew on the final exam, I can get a 62 and still get an A in the class. And so he would study just enough to get the minimum grade because you don't want to waste study time. And he spent four years. His sister really created a problem for him because they went into his, his, his change jar and they took a penny out of his change jar. And for the next couple of months, he was agonizing over what in the world happened to my spreadsheet. <laughs> I'm a penny off. He was just that kind of person. Secondhand faith is fine. We make you go to class. We make you go to church. We expect you to read your Bibles and pray. We have all kinds of expectations for you. It doesn't quit. I'm 75 years old and I still have a boss who expects certain things out of me. Right, Dr. Davis? You expect me to show up for class. You expect me to grade students' papers. You expect me to come to faculty meetings. You know, there's always expectations from somebody else. And so no matter what you end up doing, you can own your own business. 
But there are still going to be others' expectations of you. So secondhand faith, when it comes to doing right, is okay. But at some point, you've got to make this switch from secondhand faith, just doing what's expected of me, doing what's required of me, to a firsthand faith where you do it because of your relationship with God. And so in Genesis chapter 18, we find this change that's going to take place in Sarai. The next mention of Sarah is chapter 17. Um, This is 13 years after the birth of Ishmael. Sarai is now 89 years old. Now, since that's older than me, that's really old. For the very first time, God begins to address Sarai. God returns to Abram, starts talking about his covenant again, and he gets down to chapter 17, verse 15, and God says unto Abram, As for Sarai, she has been included in no discussion of the covenant up to this point. God has not addressed her at all. But finally, God says, As for Sarai, thou shalt not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, Sarai means princess, and Sarah means princess. So the meaning of the name didn't change. But when God changes people's names, it means they are entering into a new and different relationship with him. He changes Abram to Abraham. And God promises here that not just Abraham is going to have a son, but he says Sarai, Sarah, is going to bear that child. So for the very first time, she finally, at the age of 89, it's been 24 years now since she left home, and now God includes her in the promises. And in verse 17, when God makes this declaration that she's going to be the mother of nations, kings of people shall be from her, Abraham falls on his face and laughs. Peter's not the only idiot in the Bible. (laughs) Abraham is in the very presence of God. God makes this wonderful declaration, and Abraham falls on his face and he laughs, not out of joy. He says in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that's 100 years old and Sarah that's 90? Estimating it's one year off at this particular point. And he says in verse 18, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Lord, you're talking about the impossible. Just let Ishmael be my promised son. And God says, no. Verse 19, Sarah will bear thee a son. You'll call his name Isaac. I'll establish my covenant with him. Ishmael is not the promised son. 
Now, this is God and Abraham talking. Sarah's not here at the present time. She doesn't meet God until chapter 18. Three men show up at the tent. Abram says, get some food. So she does. She whips up a meal, bread, a ton of bread. She could have fed the whole household of 300 plus people with as much bread as she made there. Get the butter out, get the milk, get the young calf, get it on the grill. This is a full-fledged meal. And after the meal, by the way, this is the very first time that Sarah meets God. Everything else has been mediated through Abraham. God meets with Abraham, talks to him. Abraham comes home and surely talks to Sarah. But now Sarah is there. And God says in verse 10 of chapter 18, I'm going to return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Sarah and Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed. Now God laughs at, or Abraham laughs at God. Now Sarah laughs at God, saying within her, in herself, Am I waxed old? Shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? I mean, Abraham is ten years older than Sarah. And the Lord says, Why? Did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for God? The time appointed, I will return unto thee, and Sarah shall have a son. And then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not. When we don't have a good reason, we can usually come up with a lie. And so Sarah lies face to face with God. She says, I didn't laugh. God calls her out and says, you did. But it makes no difference whether Sarah believes God at this point or not. She's going to have a baby. God's going to do what God's going to do. And so sure enough, it comes. Now, it's interesting that for whatever reason, between here and the birth of Isaac, Abraham and Sarah travel up to Gerar. I don't know if there was some business deal going on up there. I don't know if they were having a sale and she wanted to go check on new clothing. After all, if she was going to have a baby, she needed new clothes. I don't know what the deal was. But they go up there and they go through this whole be my sister again routine because I don't want to get killed, haven't had Isaac yet, and so you just pretend you're my sister. Now, she's 89 years old. Even though she lives to be, you know, like 120-something, 89 is still pretty old. What does she look like? She looks like she's always looked. One guy in a commentary said, she was too old to be beautiful. So the, the king of Gerar, he just wanted to make a treaty. He just wanted to, to uh, have some kind of a, of a link between him and Abraham, and so it didn't make any difference how old she was. The problem is, Abraham gives the same reason in Gerar that he gave in Egypt. You're too beautiful, somebody's going to want you, they're going to kill me to get you, so just tell them you're my sister. 
she's gorgeous at 89. I, I was considering putting a picture up of Vanna White because <clears throat> she's almost 89. She looks like she's about 29. But Sarah didn't have plastic surgery and makeup and all that kind of stuff that is available today. She was just beautiful. God protects her once again. They go back home, and finally, Sarah's faith comes to fruition. She has her child. She becomes a contented wife. God gives to her what he has been promising to Abraham for years. God provides a son. Sarah, at the age of 90, fulfills God's will in God's way, in God's time. They have Isaac. She had followed Abraham wherever he took her. He did whatever, she did whatever he wanted her to do. But now she can set aside this secondhand faith with her trust in Abram, and she can put her faith in God, because he has now changed her. The barren has born a son. Chapter 21, verse 6, Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh. She laughed at God for promising that she would be able to bear a son when she was 89 years old. She laughed in disbelief. Now she laughs in joy. And she says, not only me, but my friends are going to laugh with me. Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his, I love that, in his old age. I'm only 90. He's the old guy. But she rejoiced because that secondhand faith of just following Abraham wherever he went now turned into her faith. Our lesson to learn from Sarah is that we need to develop a faith that trusts God in every step of our lives. Whatever he calls us to do, wherever he leads us, we should be willing to go. We've got to go beyond what people expect of us and do more. Do what God has called us to do. We have to reach this Hebrews 11 type of faith where we do his will with the laughter of joy. Trusting God to do more than we think we can do. It is interesting that in these beginning verses of 11, chapter 11 of Hebrews, Sarah is the only miracle involved. Abel offers a sacrifice. No big deal. Noah builds a boat. Took a while, but people can build boats. Abraham leaves home. No miracles in those three. But Sarah miraculously is able to conceive. We don't need a miracle, though, to do God's bidding. We just need to trust that what he has revealed to us is true and that following his revealed will takes us where we need to be and enables us to do what we need to do. Father, thank you for Sarah. Thank you for her faith. It took years for her to develop that personal relationship with you that resulted in her being in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Lord, help us to go from a, first, a, a secondhand faith 
to a firsthand faith as we walk with you and seek to do your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name.